This is exactly right. If you're a fan of meticulously crafted worlds that reimagine every little detail, then you'll enjoy the podcast Imaginary Worlds. Host Eric Malinsky spent over a decade working in public radio and uses those skills to create a sound-rich podcast that features interviews with Andy Weir, who wrote The Martian, the writers of hit TV shows like Star Trek Strange New Worlds, designers of games like Magic the Gathering, and the puppeteer who designed Miss Piggy. You can find Imaginary Worlds wherever you're listening to this podcast. Welcome to another episode of I Saw What You Did. My name is Millie DeCherico. I'm Danielle Henderson. And we're here to talk about film with you once again. Hello, Danielle. Hello, Millie. How are you? Uh, I'm good, actually. Can I uh, tell you something that's really exciting? Yeah, That's always. about to happen? Always. So, you know, ha- Halloween is just around the corner. Yeah. And my friends are going to gather together to go to a Reba McIntyre-themed corn maze. Oh, what? (laughs) I know, corn, you believe it. It's true. Apparently, (laughs) the country music star slash sitcom actress Reba McIntyre is, like, partnering with all of these rural corn mazes And they're all over the country, apparently. But, like, so basically the farmers or whoever create the corn maze have have done, like, a Reba McIntyre-themed corn maze. So it's, like, her face and her name. (laughs) It's so weird. And I'm like, I cannot wait to go to this. So we're going. We're going. I cannot wait for you to go. And (laughs) I swear if there's not at least one part of this experience that is not just a young girl in a red velvet trim dress <laughs> being pimped out by her mother, I will be furious. Because <laughs> what is more Halloween? What says Halloween more than I might have been born just plain white trash for fancy wasn't my name? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I'm going to have to get over my fear of corn mazes, though. I mean, I... <laughs> I'm I'm terrified about being stuck in a corn maze. Have you ever felt that? Or like a labyrinth, any kind of labyrinth like I, sh- from The Shining or so- hedge maze, something like that. I'm more freaked out by labyrinths. With a corn maze, I'm like, oh, I could just bust through here. Like, it won't be pretty and it might hurt, but I could get out. But then, I don't know. What, what if you're not in a proper look? What if it takes you a long time to bust out of the corn? <laughs> what if you bust out in the wrong direction and you go deeper into the corn? That could happen. Yeah. Or maybe there's some, or there are like weird critters that live in a corn, like there's certain corn bugs or something. That's I don't know. I'd be scared. Famously where the chupacabra sets up shop. <laughs> well, anyway, I, there's a, I'm excited. I mean, listen, every year around this time, I get really, you know, there's like a feeling in the air and everybody loves Halloween and there's all kinds of like outdoor fall activities. And so, I don't know. I'm excited about this weird Reba McIntyre <laughs> corn maze. And I will text you, I'll drop a pin, and then I'll text you when I get out of it. So, 
<laughs> You'll Check be dropping me. a pin and, and I'll call the cops and be like, uh, I'm in New York. I don't actually know where she is or if this will make sense to y'all, but she's in the middle of a field. I have no longitude and latitude, but can you just send someone to this corn, to this Reba corn maze? Send a drone and find out, like, I think she might be stuck in, like, Reba's nostril. <laughs> I think her and her friends are stuck in Reba's nose. This is so. also a good point. It better be in the shape of her face, the outline of Reba's face. Yeah. if you Listen, if you Google this, all of the corn mazes, all the designs are different. Some of them have her face. I think a lot of them have her face. But then some of them are just, like, writing that's like, we love you, Reba, or whatever. So I hope we have a face. The one we're going to, I believe, has a face. So... If you go to one that has a face, just stay on the lip. Just stay close to that top lip. It's so thin yeah. that like mm-hmm. you'll just in- instantly crest whatever opening you need to from the top <laughs> lip. <laughs> I know a thing or two about a thin upper lip, by the way. Um, well, anyway, I just wanted to tell you that information. So uh, what else is going on with you? I am thrilled that you're going to this corn maze. There's definitely some haunted rides around here um, yeah. that I don't think I'm going to do because just living in my hometown is haunted enough. Like, mm-hmm. oh, I drive I drive on my high school three or four times a week. That's that's enough haunting for me. Spooky. Oh, yeah. But definitely. I definitely have been thinking, speaking of spooky, I am wondering. So usually I, I will I will sugarcoat it or blanket statement it and just say that the internet is a failed experiment. But I don't think the internet is a failed experiment because I, I follow too many cat accounts for that to be true. But the only social media I use is Instagram now. I used to be on all of them. I'm only on Instagram now. I think the that social media is a failed experiment. And I'm kind of <laughs> like, I think I'm more inclined to think so because I joined threads for about a minute and then I was like, nah, I don't want to do this. And a couple of my friends saw me join threads and they're like, what the fuck? We've been trying to get you to join Blue Sky for, for months. And I was like, I'm not doing that either. And now Twitter is X and run by a monster. And I just, in my opinion, and I just feel like social media might be a bad idea. Yeah. I, I, I definitely it. think it's a bad idea. I think it's definitely a failed experiment. Bad idea, ruining the world, etc. But then what do we do about it? Because I was it just gets me thinking too about connection and how nice it is to like connect to my friend who lives in Spain and who I haven't seen in a long time. And you know, to kind of I don't know, I just day to day send memes and weird shit to you and Sarah and my friend Amy and like I just I don't know what we do without it now, but something has to change. So I'm wondering if you could redo social media, how would you redo it? I'm, oh my gosh, that's a lot. That would be a heavy um, question. And listeners, you can you can weigh in too, but like, I don't know. I just think we need to come up with a better way. I have to tell you, I think that, I, I, I think it's just because of my age. I think it's my experience, but like, I will forever love LiveJournal, and I feel like LiveJournal was the perfect way to communicate with people. Because it was basically like going back to blogs and writing. You could comment on people's posts, but you couldn't. There wasn't too much functionality. It was just like a blank slate for people to post words and pictures 
Yeah. And you had a little you had a little bit of personality in the bio, you know, on the uh, bio page, but that was it. I mean, it, I think the thing about social media now that's so hard to deal with is that there's so much functionality. There's so many yeah. things that can cause potential bad vibes or something, you know, like Completely. when people started liking, like, do you remember when, like, we lived in a world where people didn't react to comments? Yes. Or posts even. If you wanted to react yeah. to a post, you had to put a whole comment on there with your actual right. username. Yeah. So, I mean, I feel like that created bad vibes when we were able to do those things. Because then people just started chasing the likes, right? Yes. And it motivated them to be even more debased <laughs> than they are simply posting their thoughts. <laughs> so I don't know. I feel like it if we if we if I could recalibrate this or restart it, I would just make it super basic, not a lot of functionality, just like a way for people to communicate with each other without there being any kind of like weird qualifications like that. You know what I mean? I think that's a great fucking idea. It's a beautiful start. I fully agree. I think likes brought a level of lookism and clout chasing that I just don't love. And I also think if you sign up, if I had to redo all of social media, I think if you sign up for any kind of social media account, you should have to sign up with like your social security number tied to it, not for tracking purposes or selling a shit, because I would also remove ads. I think ads fuck people up. Definitely. But I think like bringing money and commerce into it fucked up social media for sure. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think you should have to sign up with something that's completely identifiable so that no matter if you change your username, if you change whatever, people can always know who you actually are if they like click a button, like reveal true self or something. Yeah. And then you can see, like, oh, my God, it's my own uncle telling me that I'm a piece of shit or whatever it is. <laughs> yeah. Like, I think the anonymity of social media combined with the likes and the clout chasing of this, that's what fucked it all up. And they, too, we yeah. gave people too much power. The anonymity of social media is not useful. No, you're absolutely right. Because it, I think, obviously, the anonymity part is what creates the trolls and the bots and the things that are literally ruining our world. Yeah. Right? And if you were to make people... Like, how would you do it, though? And now I'm thinking about this, because I'm like, would you assign a social media <laughs> account to every citizen? And, and then on their 18th birthday, they would have to, like, use their social... It's like a social security card to be like a social media security card oh, or something. Oh, that sounds worse somehow. I mean, I, I that's just what I was pitching for sure, but like, it oh. sounds worse. But it sounds like maybe useful. I don't know. I just, I don't know how, to, I don't trust that we can create respectable citizens anymore. Like, I don't trust that we can just assume that people left to their own devices will do the good or right or kind thing. So I think, but I also feel like, oh God, the idea of like monitoring social media seems like a pain in the ass. I don't know. I don't know. But I think being a fake person or having a level of fakeness, I'm curious as to what listeners think, how it can be useful. Because it might be useful in a way that I'm not, just not privy to because I'm 
a gremlin who lives in the woods, but maybe you're like, oh, I have a work account and I have a, you know, a, a things I post for work and things I post on my Finsta because I don't want my coworkers to see. And like, I get that. Mm. Um, like we have Finsta accounts because, you know, we need some privacy with just us and our friends. Oh, yeah. Not everything is public. Just, yeah, absolutely. And plus, the other thing, too, about a Finsta is like you can create your own timeline of or, you know, your feed or whatever. So yeah. if on a Finsta account, it's this wonderful universe of all of the design blogs and, you know, art museum accounts that I love. Right. right? Like, it's like I'm not really following very many people except for my family and some close friends. But the rest of it is stuff where I'm like, oh, this is such a pleasant account because there's no news. There's It's it's completely of my creation. I guess I could technically do that on my, you know, yeah. forward-facing account. But I'm also following people back. And so there's a lot of that where I'm following people that I'm not necessarily BFFs with, just people that I know here and there, and even strangers. Yeah. Right? So I don't know. It, like, because of that, I'm like... I, I don't know, the Finsta, you got to lean on it sometimes because it's a happy space of exactly. my own creation. Ex- maybe each social media account comes with a public and private function, like Instagram mm. close friends, so you can switch and post things so you can stay on the same account and be who you are, but not post everything publicly. Because I kind of do that on my, my forward-facing Instagram account. But that's maybe what I'm questioning because I feel like we're we're entering a time of the year where... I'm just going to be inside a lot more and scrolling a lot more. And I know that, and I'm not looking forward to it. <laughs> so, but I definitely cultivate a pretty basic and clean looking Instagram account. Like I've unfollowed, at one point I unfollowed a ton of people just because I felt like I only wanted to see stuff from people, not because I disliked them, but I just only wanted to fit, like actually see stuff in my eyeballs from people I knew and from art accounts and things like that. But I also archive my Instagram every year. So uh-huh. I only leave up like three or four pictures from the year before. Because I feel like there's something... I archive them so that I can have access to those memories if I want to. But I think it's weird that everyone has access to all of your memories all the time. Yeah. Because you change. And- you change as a person. And like it's not clear... And the, the ways in which you've changed if you're just constantly posting stuff. And a lot of people yeah. don't give you that leeway. They're like, well, I followed you and you were really into ska. So if you stop posting about ska and only start posting Tears for Fears video clips, <laughs> I'd be like, I don't know who you are anymore. So I don't think it gives room for evolution. I don't know. Maybe maybe I'm overthinking this. Is that a possibility that I'm overthinking this? <laughs> I'm, you know, I love I love an overthinking I love an overthinking moment, not going to lie. But I will say, I think, yeah, I think your Instagram is way more curatorial than mine. And I don't really know why mine isn't. I think I'm ju- I am just gave up. You know, it's like people who are like, oh, I just got too much spam and now I have 14,000 unread <laughs> emails and I can't stop it. It's just who I am now. It's kind of how I feel about my social media. I feel like, I don't know, I, I mean... I do think that archiving it once in a while is probably a good idea just to, I don't know, maybe take away the things, like you said, that aren't, like, 
top of mind or relevant anymore. I mean, you definitely do it when you break up with someone or, yeah, you know, like, exactly. you gotta go through and remove all the photos of your exes, of course. But I don't know. Yeah, I mine is kind of a mess. I have no curatorial lens on my Instagram account. I'm just posting... <laughs> Like, dumb movie clips and the occasional picture of my dog. And, you know, that's kind of it. But that's the thing. Um, I don't think it has to be curatorial for it to be good or to make sense to the person who's posting. I think that's, I think it's still a great extension of you that we get to see those things as well. Um, I just think that, you know, you don't want, do you want everyone forever looking at a picture, like looking at a post from Wild at Heart for a hundred years. I don't know. Like, I don't know. Well, but also that's, I think the difference I think for me is like the concept of, of an Instagram being good or not. Like I never think about my Instagram in terms of like qualitative no. ways. Like I'm like, Oh, I don't know if this is good or pleasing or interesting. I'm just posting. It's like a scrapbook of my stupid ass life. Exactly. You know? And, but I do have friends who are, they have very popular Instagram accounts because it's very, like, visually pleasing, and they don't post pictures of themselves. They post pictures of, you know, artsy things, and, yeah. you know... And and their, their Instagram is more designed to invite strangers to it, right? Because that's kind right. of my... I'm, I am the opposite. I'm like, th- this is just a, a place where I goof around type of thing. Exactly. Yeah, I don't know who follows me or why. And it's not yeah. the focus of me posting. So I think that's a big part of it, too, is that I'm not trying to garner an audience. And I am just posting things that are scrapbooky. But I think that's also why I archive, because if it's a scrapbook, then I should only be keeping things up there that I want to remember. Yeah. And not what everyone wants to remember. So I don't know. Just been thinking about it as the days grow colder and the Reba mazes creep in. <laughs> How how would I, I redo social media? I know. Um, I I personally think that we should just have one social media account. I don't like all of the different ones. <laughs> also an incredible, incredible change to be made. You get one fucking account to post yeah. your blog posts, your fucking Instagrams, your fucking whatever. Like, I agree. There's too, there's too much out there. Maybe that's what started this process for me because I was like... I don't want to be on any of this shit. There's like blue sky threads, blah, blah. And I'm like, I I don't care about any of it anymore. I know. And it sucks because you just like, I I don't use, I have so many apps on my phone. I have a, like, I was the other day, I was like, oh, I forgot I had a Snapchat. What in the world? (laughs) Like I had a Snapchat. And then I was like, what did I, I don't post on Snapchat. The only time I ever go into Snapchat is when I'm, using their filters with my nephews. Right. Because they have, like, dumb, you know, filters where your face pops up in, like, (laughs) no, like, some kind of, you're, you're like, the baby from Hard Boiled or something, and you're just, like... (laughs) My favorite is when you... look at us. When you open the Beavis and Butthead filter with your nephews, it's very funny. Yes, but here's the thing. I never... I will play around with those filters, but then I never post them in Snapchat. I usually download them to my phone and then put the video on Instagram. It's so dumb. It's such a dumb thing to have a bunch of 
apps. Oh, God. We need one app, some way to log, even if you're not publicly using your real name, real account, but some way to log behind the scenes and the back end that you are a real person so that if you feel like trolling, it might stop you from trolling. And we definitely need to, we just need to streamline this shit. I agree. Well, what, can I ask you, what is your favorite? What was the best time you had on a social media app in your life? Mm, live journal's high up there because I still have friends that I met on live journal OVS. So I think that's yeah. part of it. But I kind of had, I think I had the best time on, on OG Tumblr. I was going to say, like, you got a book out of that Tumblr. Yeah. <laughs> that's amazing. And it wasn't fun. Like, my my experience with feminist Ryan Gosling was not fun. I'm glad I did it. It was definitely part of my homework, and it helped me get through grad school, and I'm glad that other people got something out of it. But it was as fun as it was because it's such a it was such a visually oriented social media experience. So I loved that, like, just seeing new things and finding, like, just it was so vi- great for a visually minded person. But I have never received so many so much hateful shit in my entire life. What? Like on feminist Ryan Gosling? Are you serious? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I didn't, I didn't. Put a lot myself, of guys or something. Oh, that's what you would think. But no. <laughs> Whoa. They just didn't engage. Like we hate feminists. We hate this shit. We're not coming. I'm like, great. Stay away. It was a lot of people policing what I was saying and telling me that I was doing feminism wrong. Oh, geez. Um, and I didn't put my own face up there the o- at all. The only time I posted or anyone knew who I was, like who was doing this behind the scenes is when I wrote the book and I had a party for the release of the book at Housing Works. And then people were like, oh, you're a Black woman? Maybe we should stop yelling at you for the things you're posting about intersectional feminism. But it was kind of an interesting experiment because nobody really knew who I was at first. And so yeah. they just said any old shit they wanted to me, assuming I was like, I don't know, a white woman in the Midwest. I don't know. But they said some vile fucking shit and really honestly made that experience so bad for me that I I look at that book on my shelf now and I like cringe. Like I just have instant bad feelings looking at my own work because people Gosh. made that experience so unbelievably shitty for me. That really bums me out, Danielle. Yeah, it was it was bummed me out too because I'm like I thought I'm just doing something funny and cool, and I just got so like just waves and waves of hate all day long. And I could have handled it if it was from some fucking chump who was like, "I don't like women," and I'm like, "Yeah, I know. I live in America. Nobody likes women." But mm. it was coming from inside the house, and that made me feel. It, just, it was the first time I kind of looked at and turned the lens on whether or not social media was a good idea because of like, oh, these are a bunch of like-minded people saying the most hateful shit in the world to me right now as a way to make themselves feel better or they feel like they deserve this opportunity that I've um, created for myself more than I do. So it sucks. It sucks. And people, you know, in the wake of the Barbie movie coming out, a lot of people were tagging me in a lot of posts about feminist Ryan Gosling. And it kind of made me want to cry. because I was like, I don't have good feelings about this. Like, I can't engage with you guys about this at all. Mm. um, Because you made it awful for me. (laughs) So that's when I first started thinking maybe social media wasn't the best. But Tumblr was a pretty, aside from that, Tumblr was probably my favorite experience because I got to just see 
see a bunch of shit and I followed a bunch of knitters and like people who did the same kind of crafts that I did. So I found a lot of cool patterns that way and just got to like see things in real time and do knit alongs. And like, it was fun. It was fun aside from the most popular part of Tumblr that I created. Yeah. Well, listen, I'm with you. I'm over it. I wish we could go back to the days where (laughs) creating a avatar from a film or TV show that I was into (laughs) for LiveJournal was the highlight of my fucking day. Completely. It was real simple back then, so. But basically, yes, I agree. And I don't even want to, I don't want to be like the police of anything, or say, like, this is the way it should be done or else. Like, I don't want to sound, like, old and crotchety in that way. But I definitely think there's – I hope that there's some change on the horizon where somebody can practice – in a practical way make social media uh, a little bit more fun and less vile. Or yeah. find a way to get rid of it and have people still be able to maintain their sanity and their livelihoods and whatever else they use social media for. Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. Speaking of hate coming from inside the house. Yeah. We have a theme this week. And this one is all you, so you got to tell them what it is. Yes. So, the name of this theme is called We Hate It When Our Friends Become Successful, which, as you know, is a Morrissey song title. Not that I condone Morrissey. Obviously, I'm not doing that. But I'm using the title to explain the theme, which is a theme about professional jealousy, women who are envious of other women, basically jealousy amongst women, professional jealousy primarily. Um, But yeah, that concept. Solid. Solid. Yeah. And I think it's, um, it's, I love when my friends are successful. Like, I actually love it and push for it and try to help. And I know you do too. Um, yeah. But it's also very much a trope in film, even especially prior to people discussing the Bechdel test at large. It was definitely a common trope in films that women were just jealous all the time. <laughs> so I think it's yeah. it's like going back to look at something, like a historical artifact to kind of look at <laughs> these films, but I think it's useful. Well, well, and also, I think both these films touch upon the topic of money. Yes. Which is a very, very sensitive subject for everyone. And I think that I'd be lying if I said that I haven't been thinking about money a lot lately. Yeah. Especially this year. Being that, you know, I was laid off from my full-time job and it's thrown me in a total tailspin, like in a lot of ways. I have to admit that. I have to admit that I'm in I'm in a state of anxiety, low-level mm-hmm. anxiety, I would say, and and slight panic about finances, stability, all of the things, the upheaval that happens when you get laid off from a job or when you're in between jobs or you're not working. And I start thinking about stability and security in terms of my age. Yes. Right? And I think that's another part of this is that this is, both these movies are dealing with people who have 
homes and families and are, you know, for the most part, middle-aged, I would say, you know, at least like 30s and 40s, right? Mm -hmm. And there's this idea of like what you should have by a certain point. Like, like right. how are you an adult? How are you successful? And I think that that is a huge topic for everyone, but especially for women too. Yeah. Because there's sometimes this unsuredness about where you're supposed to be in life. And I mean, I think especially as you get older, you really think about it. Absolutely. You know? And as, as, as two women who are kind of bucking the system in that way, where we're not going the traditional route of having a partner to rely on, having children, having, you know, a specific car like career that we can count on, I think it it heightens the anxiety quite a bit. Um, yeah. As freeing as it can be as well, it heightens the anxiety at times like this where we're, you know, unemployed or on strike or what have you. And I like that in both of our films, I think in your film, we get to see so many different ways of how that looks and plays out for women. Yeah. And in my film, I think I really like that it takes a very sharp look at women who are forgotten, women who are homemakers, who maybe don't don't have a full-time career, and how, how, how they play out that jealousy is through the lens of comedy. But I think there's also a lot of really poignant shit that this movie actually also says that I maybe didn't realize when I was watching it at 11 years old. A hundred percent. Holy shit. My mind was blown. Yeah. Yeah. And I think one, th one thought that I had, which I don't know if you thought this as well, but uh, one thought that I had watching it, and, and I've seen this movie, my movie so many times, but never before did I make the connection with the fact that I'm pretty sure this planted a lot of little feminist seeds for me before I even knew what it was. Yep. Because this idea of revenge and that men can't treat you like shit and walk all over you was completely new to me <laughs> when I first watched yeah. this movie. <laughs> and I locked onto a lot of that shit like, oh, I didn't know that was possible. <laughs> yeah. I mean, listen, I'm going to be completely honest with you. I literally just realized that the d director was Susan Settleman. Yeah. Like when I was a kid, I had no Susan, Susan Settleman at all. But, nope. you know, obviously over the years, I love a lot of her movies, but I was like, oh my gosh, like this is, I'm not going to call it a feminist masterpiece, but it's definitely like more feminist than I ever thought it was in the past. And I have a lot to say about it, obviously, because I hadn't seen it since I was a kid. And then I just, I have a lot to say about Roseanne and everything. <laughs> I just... I cannot wait to talk about your film. I, I think this week, you know, is going to be interesting because, again, I feel like this is a personal theme, at least for me. Yeah. And anytime the themes are personal, <laughs> we process more, <laughs> I think. <laughs> strap in. That's code strap for strap the in. in. <laughs> Am I going first? Yep. Okay. And as I'm doing that, I'm going to take this knitting needle that I've never used <laughs> and itch my back. <laughs> I thought you were going to I'm going to take this knitting needle that I've never used for anything other than murder. And I'm sticking it in my, no, I had to itch my back. Okay. <laughs> oh my God. I have knitting needles I've never knitted in my fucking life. <laughs> is, I can't breathe. That is killing me. 
God. So my movie for the theme, We Hate It When Our Friends Become Successful, is a movie from 2006. It was written and directed by Nicole Holofcener, and it's called Friends With Money. I would feel a lot better about giving you the money if you went to a therapist. You buy your two-year-old daughter $80 shoes from France, and you're just giving me a hard time. So I think everybody knows by now that I love Nicole Holofcener. We did one of her movies way, way back on our second episode. Oh my God, that was our second episode? Yep, it was called Changing Female Friendships. And uh, I talked about the movie Walking and Talking, which is one of my all-time favorite films. Her movies are must-see for me. Like, anytime they come out, I... I go to the theater if I if I have to, but I, mm-hmm. I love her movies. And, you know, she's known for these kind of smaller, independent-style films about relationships and families and friendships and stuff. And they're just filled with these, like, tiny little moments that I really connect to and identify with. And the protagonists are always women, which I love. But as I was reading about her... You know, there's a there's a couple of really good there's I think there's a New Yorker piece about her, but there's a couple of different videos I watched and stuff. She well, I forgot about this when she was young. Apparently, her f- parents got divorced, and then her mom remarried a guy who produced all the Woody Allen films. Oh wow! So she spent a lot of time on movie sets, which I think obviously helped her in her later career, but. She went to film school at NYU and Columbia. She worked at a video store at one point. And actually, I didn't realize this either. This is a good fact. She was actually the original director of Can You Ever Forgive Me? Which we talked about on our, was it a bonus episode? I think we talked about that movie. Um, But then, you know, Marielle Heller obviously went on to make that movie. But I thought it was really interesting that she was at one point attached to that film. A one-sentence synopsis of Friends with Money. Four female friends navigate family life and each other's different financial situations. They sure do. That's it. So, this movie stars maybe the best crew of my all-time favorite actresses who are playing the most obnoxious people alive. (laughs) (laughs) So... You've got the protagonist of this film, Olivia, who is played by Jennifer Aniston. And it's revealed at the beginning of the film that Olivia used to be a teacher, and she was a pretty good one by all accounts, but she couldn't take it anymore, and she quit. And now she is cleaning houses for a living and smoking pot on her time off. Yeah? And using her clients' vibrators? Very, very strange, I have to say. (laughs) I am, I don't care how good you are at cleaning, you are not ever good enough at cleaning to use someone else's vibrator that you are not in a sexual relationship with. I would never dare. I don't care if it was soaking in pine saw for a week. (laughs) That is not, not, Yours. That's not yours. That's someone else's. Especially right out of the drawer? Mm. Well, that's the thing. Olivia's kind of in a uh, transitional period, perhaps. (laughs) She's uh, obsessed with this married guy she had this two-month affair with, and now she'll just randomly call him and hang up and 
Uh, one of her friends convinces her to go out with her personal trainer, who is played by Scott Kahn. We know who Scott Kahn is. Rest in peace, James Kahn. <laughs> Rest Dead- in peace, his daddy. <laughs> deadlifting, deadlifting Jimmy Kahn. A short-lived experiment because he died on us. <laughs> we deadlifted your daddy, Scott. <laughs> In our dreams. Um, <laughs> but his his character is a terrible dickhead. Oh. Okay, he she and here's the thing: she just kind of accepts it, right? She's just like, okay, he sucks. Like, I'll just go with it, and. That's the thing, is that you're sort of unclear on whether or not Olivia is happy or unhappy. You know, maybe it's a bit of both. I will say that you may have to suspend your disbelief a little that Jennifer Aniston could play a character like this. I actually think she does an okay job at it. Um, Yeah. You know, she's not Rachel from Friends in this at all. But that's her character, and she's kind of the the protagonist of, of Friends with Money. Uh, and then the, the thing about it is that her three girlfriends are way more financially secure than she is. They're all married with kids. You've got Catherine Keener, who plays her friend Christine. She's a, su- a successful screenwriter, and she works with her husband, David, who is also an asshole. I'll point that out. In the beginning of the film, uh, they the two of them have basically decided that they want to add a second story onto their house, and now all their neighbors hate their guts because they're like blocking the view. And I, oh, did I mention that this movie, I believe this movie takes place in Santa Monica, California. So <laughs> you'll have to remember that because obviously those are, that's the community where there would be rich assholes who would care about the ocean view. Right? Yeah, it's a very specific part of the LA lifestyle. Yes. So they've pissed off everybody around them because they're they're greedy and they want to build a, a, a second story on their house. So then you have Jane, who is played by Frances McDormand, and she is a very successful fashion designer of women's clothing. It's sort of like free people meets anthropology. <laughs> I know they're the same company, by the way. I just found that out recently. Um, <laughs> but, you know, it's that... Middle-aged rich lady look style. Do you know what I'm saying? Like a lot of tunics and uh, scarves and whatnot. A lot of long necklaces and uh, boho chic hats. Boho chic for damn sure. That's Jane's fashion line to a T. So her husband is this very sweet British guy who... Everybody is convinced is gay because he loves cashmere and he always get gets hit on by men. I, it's just, he's like the running joke in the film, right? That is the weirdest plot point to me, I gotta say. It is such a weird plot point that everyone, that these seemingly progressive people cannot stop talking about and like in a gossipy way, like, do you think our friend's husband might be gay? I mean, here's what I'll say to that point. Number one, it's 2006, right? Number two, people still do that. (laughs) People still think their friends' husbands are gay. Sometimes. What? Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm not saying that I've participated in that, but, like, I think people still believe that. I think think there there is a certain type of person who would be like, 
hey, this her, her husband is gay and he's not out of the closet yet. I do, I definitely think that. Well, I will say to the credit in the film at least they discuss it in terms of whether or not their friend is happy. I see. Yep. So I think yeah. that's kind of the the thing that takes it from being super cruel, like it takes it or it takes it away from being super cruel and turns it into more of an exercise of like well, if this is true, we'll just deal with it, but we wish that they would just deal with it so they could be happy. Well, uh, yeah, and that, of course, is the theme of the film, ultimately, right? Yeah. The other thing about Jane is that she's kind of in the middle of a midlife crisis, I would say. She yeah. stops washing her hair because she's too tired to wash her hair. Her arms get it tired. Hurts, it hurts her. Yeah, her arms get tired. Her arms get tired, which is so funny. And she starts freaking out in, in public on people who are taking her parking spots and cutting in line in front of her. It's kind of a, uh, like a, I guess in the modern context, it would be like somebody filmed a Karen on an airplane or something. You know what I mean? It's like one of those type of things that's happening with her. At one point, though, I have to say this shocked me. Her husband mentions that she's 43 years old. And I was like, oh, I'm older than her. (laughs) Okay. Let me put this knitting needle in my eyeball now. <laughs> Why? <laughs> I was like, I'm older than Frances McDormand and Friends with Money. <laughs> and she's having a midlife crisis and freaking out in Old Navy. <laughs> Holy shit. <laughs> I felt that. Um, like that it's a little cl- too close to home. Too close. And then you finally have Joan Cusack, right? She plays this character named Franny. She is a very wealthy stay-at-home mom, right? She clearly has the most money out of her friend group, but she also has issues with spending a lot of money on things like children's shoes, which I agree. Don't spend $100 on children's shoes. I love how her husband, who's, who's played by Greg German, and who was weirdly everywhere at this point in the early 2000s. Like, I feel like he was in every TV show, every movie, where he's like, well, no, this is the time you should be buying her these expensive shoes because, you know, her feet are forming and growing and she looks at him like he has a pineapple growing out of his head. She's like, are you fucking kidding me? These shoes are going to be worthless in two months. Yeah. Yeah. And and so, so once you have all of the characters laid out, you start to kind of understand what the movie is actually about, which is this, it's this notion of, ha- of, of these couples, of these people having these secret conversations amongst themselves about their friends, right? And it's this thing where everybody is desperately trying to convince themselves that they're normal mm-hmm. and decent by pointing out the problems that their friends are having in their lives, you know? And I felt like that is a very real thing. I mean, that I participate in it. I know what happens in my life. I'm I'm definitely the single friend that all my married friends talk about and worry about, I'm sure. Yeah. You know? And again, a lot of the conversation seems to be about money, which is that, you know, like, for example, Franny being the most wealthy out of her friends... You know, she has a lot of money to throw around. She's, like, able to donate millions of dollars to things. And everyone's like, you know, should she be donating this to this? And why doesn't she give her money to this? And then there's this whole 
story element where they buy a table at this ALS benefit in their community and it's like tens of thousands of dollars and everybody's like, why are we going to this thing? Like, this is so shishi and bougie and this And sucks, why don't they just know? give the money directly to ALS? <laughs> like, right. why are we having this big show about it instead of just donating the money directly to ALS treatments? Well, and it's funny because Franny, in a weird way, kind of tells them why they do that. Like, she's yeah. basically like, you pay a shit ton of money for the table, and then they give that money to the ALS foundations. Meaning, there's a layer of something that needs to happen for rich people, <laughs> you know, to to be able to donate things. And I was like, that's fucking real, I guess. I mean, I don't know. I've never done that in my life. I've never... No. Bought a $10,000 banquet table at at an event, nor have I even been to one, to be honest. I've never attended one of those galas. But, you know, it's that kind of thing where she's just like, yeah, I mean, it would be great if that were the case, but you're like, be be real. These are rich people. Yeah, this is is how it's done, is they need to be coerced into into being good people. Yes, and listen, there have been... Many other no- Nicole Haloff Center films that are about that. Like, she, this is not the first time she's talked about that concept, like charitable donations and stuff. And, you know, I think that's kind of a, a theme in her work is, mm. you know, middle class or upper middle class people who are guilty about that. Like the guilt that you have of being middle-class, um, yeah. which is, I think really interesting, but I will say that for this film in particular, I, I, I don't think I've ever seen a movie that talks about money in this way. Like it can be really hard to make significantly less money than your friends. Yes. There's, there's a point I think in everyone's adulthood or adult life where, suddenly you're no longer just paying for the meal that you purchased. Everyone wants to split the bill evenly. And if you're the person who is not earning as much, it's very fraught because you're like, why am I paying an equal amount when you all had steak dinners or salmon or whatever, and I just had a salad? And I know a lot of people, a lot of films make fun of that as well, but like that is a very real progression in adult life when you start to realize that you're earning less than people and it starts coming out in social ways, which I think this film also addresses really well. And the fact that like Jennifer Aniston's character is running a scam on just getting the sample size of the nice My favorite. makeups and moisturizers that she wants to use because she cannot afford the full-size jar. That's real. Yeah. That's a technique that I know very well, by the way. And my favorite part of that is she goes home and she puts them all up on a little shelf. Yeah. Like, she places her little samples, her little Chanel bottles, her little Lancome bottles on a shelf. And it's like a little luxury in her life that she that she loves. And she, because she can't afford the full-size version. I've been there, you know? that. And that's the thing, is like, these little nuances are, I, I, I just, I love it because it's so real and it's, you know, stuff that I've thought about and have have experienced in my life. But ultimately, I think what you figure out is that, guess what? Everyone is fucked up. (laughs) 
everyone has problems that they keep to themselves, you know? Completely. But as this movie rolls out, you begin to realize that more and more, that you're saying, okay, well, maybe money isn't happiness, and everybody believes that it is, but it's actually not. And how do people navigate that? And, you know, this character of Olivia being the one that maybe is in an actual kind of tailspin about her life, potentially, but maybe not. I mean, you never know. Her friends think she is. Her friends think that she's spiraling out, but maybe she's not. And so that's a that's a very, to me, I think a very, like, nice idea that happens, which is, you know, even though this is, like, a really, like, biting, painful movie about, other people's lives or what other people think other people are up to, it ends up, you know, kind of in that way where you're like, well, you think too much because maybe some people aren't unhappy. And maybe some people don't want what you have or what you want. Right. Yeah. And I think it's, it's also an interesting, another interesting facet of it to me too, is this notion of pity and who gets to be pitied. And, and they're constantly like Nicole Holoff center is, is definitely, always transversing that line and going really swiftly back and forth between who gets to be pitied or not. Because you would think, like, obviously, Olivia is the source of pity for a lot of her friends, where they're just really at odds with, like, how do we help her? Like, how do we help her become us or have at least a better life with a, a better job and where she's making more money? But then she also pities them. And she's, like, looking at these relationships that are so fucked. And she's like, why would you put yourself in... in the path of this just to have money or just to have this semblance of a life that you think you should be striving for when it clearly makes you unhappy. Because I yeah. think the thing that they don't discuss specifically, but like these are people who seem to have known each other for a long time, like at least college possibly. Um, mm-hmm. So she's kind of pitying where what they've become as well. Even though they do have money, they don't have happiness. They don't have security. They don't have a lot of things that are valuable to her. Yeah, and they don't have passion in their relationships and stuff. I mean, it's it's very complicated. Everybody's fucked up, you know? I think that's kind of what I get out of this film a lot. And, I mean, to me, this is the type of film, I mean, I feel like this is the type of film I really gravitate towards because it's just like a small slice-of-life story about adults you know, centered around these kind of nuances of of people and their relationships. And I love that it's centered around middle-aged women and their mm-hmm. thoughts and their feelings and that their husbands are more or less kind of supporting roles in the film. Completely. Um, you know, which I think is really great. And, you know, I don't know. I, I just love this movie. It really, like... <laughs> it really makes me laugh. Like, there's this scene, one of my favorite scenes in the movie is when... Frances McDormand is pulling up to the convenience store and that lady pulls into her space. And as it turns out, her son is, um, her son is like one of Frances McDormand's son's playmates. And, you know, it's it's clear that this lady is like some arrogant mom that has never met the Frances McDormand character. And then she's just like, yeah, your son was at my house and he ate two big meals and he broke a mug. And he said that you let, him watch Desperate Housewives. <laughs> like, the best part of that scene is the woman just gets back in her car. She's like, we're not doing this today. <laughs> but like, was I, it, it made me remember about being a kid and about 
going over to somebody's house and like eating all their food or something. That was such a grievance. That was such a grievance for people. <laughs> we weren't allowed to do it. It's like, you better pack a fucking lunch or coming to my house. The most you'll get Shit. is a fucking PB and J. I remember when I was in high school and I used to have like all my guy friends come over, we'd be like, you know, whatever, smoking weed. And then they would just decimate the pantry in my mom and dad's house. And my mom and dad is like, we are feeding these boys. Do you know that? We have to spend hundreds of dollars in groceries because of your boyfriends. And I'm like, <laughs> they're not my boyfriends. But I'm also like, yeah, because we were high and we ate a lot. I don't know, mom. Oh, good. <laughs> but they were. it was just like a huge thing. Like, do their parents know that they come here and they eat all of our food? They just wreck shop. <laughs> oh no! I I love that. I love that scene because she's just going all she's going all like falling down. Where she's like, she's kind of sick of being invisible to people, even though she has a stunning career as a very well known fashion designer, and people in her life do know her. She's pretty. She's feeling pretty invisible and pretty, yeah. uh, you know, stuck. And there's a great scene where they're at the farmers market, and she's kind of laughing at this baby's name. That's <laughs> so sweet. <laughs> And she's with Olivia, and Olivia's like, what the fuck are you doing? And you can kind of see that she feels isolated even in that way, like in her sense of humor, what she's finding, you know, is funny to her or interesting to her. She's just kind of an isolated person who is letting those feelings leak out all over the place as the movie goes yeah. on. It's yeah. really good. She's she's removing the filter. Of, yeah. You know, she's basically like, I don't give a fuck anymore, you know, which is real. So I don't know. Th- I... Obviously, I was really wanting to do this movie. Uh, I might have created the theme around it, to be honest, but I, I, I this is my favorite one. This is my favorite Nicole Holof Center movie, I think. And I, I think it's underseen, I would say. I think a lot of, um, a lot more people need to see it or should see it. But also, like in her catalog, it's, it's, a, it's for some reason a lot of people forget about this one, I think. Yeah. And I love it so much. And I think it's for the theme, it's everything. So it's a, such a great movie. I think I am so bothered by the ending of the movie, but <laughs> up until that point, it is truly, it, and it's even including the ending. It's, it's still a beautiful and stunning film, but the end of it bothers me so much. It's divisive for sure. I wish we could reveal it. You're just going to have to watch it and then email us. Yeah, yeah. Okay, you want to move on to your movie? I can't wait. Yes, so my film was released in 1989. Uh, It was based on the book The Life and Loves of a She-Devil by Faye Weldon. Uh, The screenplay is by Barry Strugatz and Mark R. Burns. And it was directed by Susan Seidelman. My movie is... She-Devil. Justice serves those who serve themselves. I can weirdly quote this movie beat for beat. I've seen it so many times. It was just on HBO or or cable, like, all the time after school. All the time. Yep. So All the time. One thing I will say about Susan Seidelman, who you should absolutely look up. She's a stunning director, indie indie director, um, producer. And she's directed things like Smithereens. Desperately Seeking Susan and Making Mr. Right. Uh, She's very prolific. And the other thing that I want you to keep in mind as we discuss this film is that the man at the center of the controversy is Ed Bagley 
Jr. Just get an image of Ed Bagley Jr. in your mind. And there are two women, minimum two women, destroying themselves for Ed Bagley Jr. Okay, I am so glad you brought this up at the top because (laughs) I literally said to myself, I said this to myself when I was watching at this time, has Ed Bagley Jr. ever fucked this much in film? (laughs) Never before, never again. I was like, he is a straight up stud in this film. And I'm like, has this happened before? (laughs) Not to him, it hasn't. Not to him. And he went no right No disrespect, from, dude. No disrespect. Oh, no disrespect at all. But he went right from this movie into obsessing over electric cars before electric cars were cool. So yeah. I, I can't imagine they were even going to let him fuck in any movies after that. <laughs> For a long time. And he is... There are so many sex scenes with him. I'm like, what in the <laughs> damn world? To his credit, he's pretty fucking ripped, but he's Ed Bagley Jr. The entire time. <laughs> The entire fucking time. So my one sentence synopsis of this movie is after a frumpy housewife discovers her husband's philandering, cheating ways, she goes on a goddamn rampage. (laughs) (laughs) And I should really say she goes on a subversive secret rampage. Mm -hmm. So the cast is awesome. We have Meryl Streep, who plays Mary Fisher, this romance novelist who's at the center of the controversy of this affair. Uh, Roseanne Barr plays Ruth Patchett. Uh, Again, this kind of frumpy stay-at-home housewife who's doing her best. And Ed Bagley Jr. is Bob, um, who is the philanderer. And we also have Linda Hunt in this movie, Sylvia Miles. Um, uh, There's one of my favorite weird appearances in this film in a, in, a, in a minor role is A. Martinez. He plays this guy named Garcia. But I knew him from Days of Our Lives. <laughs> 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 Which I watched religiously around the same time this movie came out. I would always tune into Days of Our Lives all summer long. And then yes. was really sad when September rolled around and I could no longer follow my favorite soap. I did attempt <laughs> to tape it. I attempted to tape it. And just never could find, like, an hour to watch it at night because my grandma was always watching Wheel of Fortune and Jeopardy and then Mm. into her weird shows. So, A. Martinez is in it playing the fucking wildest character. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So, at the crux of this film, we have Roseanne Barr playing Ruth. And you have to also remember that at this point in time, Roseanne Barr was a lightning rod of controversy in this country, even more so than she would eventually become like a couple years ago. Um, she was considered foul. Uh, she was really, uh, you know, just kind of vile for her comedy and her focus on working class uh, families and working class people. And she just didn't look the part and wasn't going to look the part of the typical TV star, film star. Um, so she got a lot of shit. And a lot of it was unnecessary shit, uh, simply for being who she was and looking the way she looked and having a, a TV, a popular TV show that discussed the trials and tribulations of the working class people. I, I want to say, like, that was like the first thing that I remembered about watching this movie again was, th- I mean, this was like, I feel like this movie was setting up a conversation about, 
you know, who America thought that Roseanne Barr was, was she was just like this gross pig woman who wasn't feminine and was, you know, like foul-mouthed and shrill and loud. And I felt like this movie was making a comment about that. I feel like, you know, they were basically like, well, you know, this is, we're taking all of these things that you think about her and we're making it into a character and, you know, we're going to discuss it, which I think, you know, is pretty interesting. I mean, I don't know, like, again, we're in this situation now, I think that kind of who she is now is a lot different, obviously, than who she was back then. And it, I feel like she was pretty revolutionary back then. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, she was, to me, you know, like, really fucking the, fucking the system a little bit in this way, in this way that she was like, I, I, I am not apologizing for who I am and what I look like and what I dress like, and I don't care if I'm demure and this and that, exactly. which I thought was great. You know, and of course now, a, a lot different. Oh yeah, um, she's completely indefensible now. <laughs> like completely yeah. indefensible now. But I think she's the way that she started courting controversy at this stage in her career. Um, it just only got it got worse. It just kept rolling like a fucking unstoppable train downhill. But at the, at its apex, at its you know right at, in this moment when this film came out, it was just. What made her socially unacceptable and indefensible to most people was how she looked and what she what she chose to discuss. And again, planting all these little feminist seeds for me, for sure. Yeah. Um, and I think that the, the, the other thing that's really remarkable about that for me and the reason I mention it is that I don't think this movie could have been made with any other cast. Like, the casting is pretty perfect when mm-hmm. you consider the subject matter of the film. So I kind of, I always like a movie that feels like, oh, that could have only happened in that moment with those actors or with that one actor. And it doesn't happen very often, but I like that this movie gives me that feeling. This Like, you can't remake it at this point with anyone else. You can't, there's, it's a totally, it's from a totally different time and can only have been made, I think, with the cast that it was made with. It was kind of designed for for them. Yeah, totally. So Ruth is, you know, at the start of the film, she's super happy to be getting jazzed up to go out because she is a housewife. She doesn't get to go out very often. She lives in the suburbs of New York with her family. Her husband works in New York City. He's an accountant. And they're going out to some gala. And her husband, Bob, like I said, is just this, like, philandering pervert accountant, like a gentleman (laughs) pervert of New York. And... (laughs) (laughs) And we come to find out eventually that he never wanted to marry Ruth. He married her because she got pregnant and his parents kind of forced him into it. So he hasn't been happy with her from the beginning, which, again, the thing that is stunning to me about this film is Ruth fucking knows that. But she has tried to make a life and a family regardless. Um, And she loves him. She knows he's never loved her, but she loves him enough and loves their family enough to try to make it make a life for all of them. And she takes a lot of pride in it. So they're super jazzed to go to this gala. They go to this event and who is in attendance but the one and only Mary Fisher, who is a premier romance novelist. She lives in a pink mansion in the Hamptons. 
She looks like, she kind of is like an early prototype for Sonia from The Real Housewives of New York, if anyone watches that franchise. And she has her, her mother is in a, in a home and she's hired a live-in sex worker as a butler. So she is just like, she talks in this kind of <laughs> breathy voice and it's Meryl Streep who is so fucking funny in this movie. And she is just like living her sexiest goddamn life. So Ruth spills wine on Mary at this gala and that brings Bob over and Bob kind of comes over just to scold Ruth for being such a klutz. And then he locks eyes with Mary Fisher and they fall in love right away. So he Mm. ends up giving her a lift home and Ruth is in the back seat while they're driving Mary home and he drops his wife off first at the end of their development, doesn't even walk her to the fucking door. Mm. And then basically drives 75 miles away to Mary's house where they immediately fuck to the consternation of her butler who is absolutely waiting for her to come home in his like satin pajama getup, which is, again, (laughs) so funny to me. So Ruth basically is, she knows in her bones that he is having an affair with Mary. And she's at home that night reading one of Mary's books and just like chunking through a box of Dunkin' Donuts. <laughs> and the next morning she's making breakfast and he comes home and she's got like 800 orange halves on the counter, like squeezing fresh juice and shit. And he, Bob is thrilled because he's like, oh yeah, like I had a, he makes up a lie. He's like, oh yeah, my tire blew out in the expressway. But now I am Mary Fisher's business manager. Like I'm, I'm her accountant, but because she's such a big client, now I can level up to business manager. And mm-hmm. Ruth is like, yeah. While I'm at home doing all the plumbing and lawn mowing, you're fucking this new client of yours and with wild abandon on a round bed. <laughs> so, there's, there's one funny scene because the kids are also very funny. So you've got Nicolette, who's just this kind of, you know, just kind of bratty teenage girl character. Um, mm-hmm. And Andy, her son, who's truly a proto psychotic like he there's a scene in a grocery (laughs) store where she's like i'm gonna make dinner for your dad and you know his parents are coming for like your grandparents are coming for dinner and as she and nicolette are looking at this recipe in a magazine andy is just stabbing milk cartons like just walking past (laughs) and stabbing all these milk cartons and he goes home and he's playing with his gerbil and he's just like this little fucked up 80s kid which again I don't think we get to see very much anymore and I kind of appreciated how wild he was oh yeah amazing oh so they're in the grocery store and you know Ruth is stressed the fuck out trying to make this meal and She's burning things and Bob comes home late and she's trying to get dressed and she's just kind of like seething and shaking and fuming and she's having the worst night of her fucking life. And when she when the parents come over and she she finally starts rolling things out of the kitchen, she trips and almost drops the whole cheese plate. And then when she <sighs> unveils the the <laughs> the main dish, the pièce de résistance, uh her son's gerbil is baked on top of this like bisque soup. It's so gnarly looking. (laughs) It's so gross. So Bob fucking flips out. He's had it. And this is what sets off the trajectory of the film, because he basically tells her he's leaving. And the reason he's leaving is that there are only four assets that he has in his life, his home, his family, his career, and his freedom. But Ruth is the only liability. So he leaves, and Ruth is crying, and she's upset. 
She lets herself be mad for a minute. And the next morning, the kids go to school and she takes the dog and kind of secures the dog safely outside of the house. And then she quickly sets to work destroying everything that matters to Bob from that list of four things, his home, his career, his freedom, and his family. The home is easy because she just burns it the fuck down, like spectacularly (laughs) burns this house down. She's overloading circuits. She's got aerosols in the microwave. She's got a fucking hairdryer on the bed under some pillows. So this is a core childhood memory for me. (laughs) The... The shot, it's definitely green screened. If you can see it now, you're like, oh, this is literally the actress Roseanne Barr walking in front of a green screen of a house blowing up. But that part was, is like a core childhood memory seared in my brain of this smirking Roseanne Barr character, like wearing those like dewdrop glasses. (laughs) Walking away from an exploding house. (laughs) It's so fucking good. It's so, it's also burned in my brain. Also, like the outfit she's wearing, everything. I'm like, yes. Everything. Her hairstyle. And she, before she blows up the house, she takes Mary's file out of Bob's uh, file cabinet. And she also takes a picture of her family. And then she's out the fucking door. And she's like, Goodbye. She puts a fucking knife in the blender. Like I've, it's like she says shit that I've never even considered could be part of what destroys your home. Like she has <laughs> thought this shit out. She she takes the fucking smoke alarm off with a hammer. Like it is just an, a very impressive scene at the, to yeah. start off her path of destruction. So when the kids come home from school, they're like, oh, "What the fuck? Where's our shit?" And she's like, "Everything is burnt down." And they get in a cab and drive directly to Mary's house, where she drops the kids off. With Bob and Mary. And Bob and Mary, this scene is so funny to me for a couple of reasons. Bob and Mary are in her indoor pool and she's got like a little tent around a part of it and it's filled with bubbles, which is already weird enough. The funniest fucking part of the scene to me is when Andy's just standing there staring at them and Bob's like running away to chase Ruth and kind of be like, what the fuck are you doing? And she's telling him the house burned down and the kids are basically yours now. And Meryl Streep just like tries to cover herself with bubbles and swim away (laughs) like a weird little (laughs) Loch Ness monster. It's so fucking funny. But yeah, Ruth crosses off the first things, the first two things on his list in quick succession. She's like, the house is burned down and here's your family. You love them so much. Here they are. You fucking deal with it. Yep. I fucking love it. Then she does my favorite thing where she takes a new name and she goes to work at the nursing home where Mary's mother lives. And her the name she chooses is Vesta Rose. She loves roses. Um, and she quickly learns from the woman managing this home, that the thing that they can't stand more than anything is bedwetters. Like, it is unforgivable. Mm-hmm. So she also learns that they've been sedating all of the residents. And then she meets Hooper, who's played by Linda Hunt, incredibly iconic actress. Yes. And Hooper's really quiet and small and meek, and she's been working there for over 20 years, and just seems to be kind of resigned to her fate in life as somebody behind the scenes. And she just does what she's told. She's very much like a soldier in that way. Mm-hmm. Well, Ruth has her own fucking plan. And she replaces the sedatives with vitamins, gets all these old fucks up, up and moving. 
They're playing <laughs> soccer. Oh, it's such a good scene. I don't know why that scene makes me so happy because it's like the idea of like, oh, here are all these like medicated older women whose families, you know, the the messaging is that their families have left them in this home and they were basically like drugged to deal with it. And, you know, essentially Vesta Rose is like, fuck that. Like, mm-hmm. they can have full lives in here. It doesn't have to be sad. And she, you know, basically, they're, like, out there kicking the soccer ball, and everyone's, like, having a great time. And I'm just like, that makes me so happy. I don't know. I love it. It's so sweet. It's so sweet, truly. And you know that, like, my grandma's in a home, so that's always something yeah. I, I thought about when I was putting my own grandmother in into care. And, and you know, yeah. obviously, this is the worst example of what a care home could look like, but it's not yeah. it's not out of the ordinary. It's not out of possibility. So she just takes it among herself to really be a savior in that moment. Mm-hmm. I think that's why we both feel like it's so it's such a, an uplifting scene because she's saving yeah. these 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 residents, but she's also saving Hooper. And showing Hooper that, like, there's another way to do your job. There's another way to live. There's another way to be here. Mm-hmm. Um, so as she's, as everyone is kind of woken up, she starts talking to Mary's mother, um, Mrs. Fisher, and getting kind of the dirt and the scoop on what their relationship is, but also what Mary came from. And the mother's mm-hmm. fucking hilarious. She's bawdy and she curses and she's just like, like, fuck this and fuck her and, you know, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> but she's basically giving the scoop on Mary and what a terrible daughter she is. And Vess- Ruth kind of encourages her and is like, well, you can go see her. Like, you have rights. You can go see her on Sunday. I'll help you make the arrangements. And the minute Mrs. Fisher leaves, Ruth dumps a entire bed pan's worth of urine on her bed. <laughs> so she is setting the stage for the fact that Mrs. Fisher is not going to be allowed to come back. And at this point, we cut back to Mary. And Mary Fisher is in hell. Like, she is trying to—she can't work. It's too noisy for her to work. The kids are fucking playing the radio and talking on a party line all day. The dogs are fighting. Um, well, her dog dies by accident when she tells Andy to throw a stick. She's like, get that stick. Like, drop that stick. Leave the dogs alone. So he throws it, and her dog goes over a fucking cliff. And she passes yeah, you know out. That, that, you know that hit me real hard. Uh, any type of, like, little white dog in a movie, I connect to instantly. And oh I was God. like, this is so sad. And then she had, like, the little <laughs> grave marker made for the dog. <laughs> she has, like, a fucking mausoleum built for the dog <laughs> in the middle of the yard. In this, like, I was like, yo, that's me. That's going to be me. Let's get serious. Oh my gosh. Oh, it's so funny. It is so fucking funny. And her her maid is pissed off because her maid is like, I was hired to work for you. And now I've got your fucking lover and his kids and your mother and all and two dogs. And she, like the maid eventually quits because she's like, this is balls. And Garcia also is like, I'm fucking retired. Like I'm a butler. I'm not a maid. I'm a, I'm he's like swimming in a pool, being like, fuck you. If we're not gonna get down and bone, that was my actual job. And you don't need that anymore. So (laughs) Bob, because he's like, now Mary has become what Ruth used to be, which is the woman who maintains his life. He starts stepping out again. So you see Bob cheating and his business is growing and he's cheating all over the place uh, while Mary is in hell. And then her mother 
has to stay with her because this woman from the care home calls and is like, yo, she pissed the bed. She can't come back. So she is having this like, the only thing I can equate it to is another 80s movie that I love, uh, Madhouse with John Larroquette. Of course. And it's like she's just having this cavalcade of people who are coming into her house that she can't get rid of, who are ruining her fucking life and ruining her fucking house. Oh, man. that The scene of when she finally flips the fuck out on the kids, <laughs> like when they're watching that big big TV and she comes in and she's just like throwing shit and then Ed Begley Jr. comes in and then she throws him against a, what is it, like a Papazon looking chair and he falls backwards. Like that whole scene, I was like, yo, Meryl is so good at physical comedy. Oh my God. so good at it. She's so good. She's like, Bob! Like after she just like yells (laughs) at the kids and is like, like smashing her mom. She's like, mom, sit the fuck down, shut the fuck up. Bob comes in and she just slams him against the fucking chair. It's so good. Oh, She's yeah. She great. eventually loses her goddamn mind. But before that can happen, we ha- we still have two important things to cross off Bob's list. So Vesta gets fired. Vesta Rose, Ruth, gets fired for letting the urine incident slide. She hops on a bus to go back to the city and Hooper joins her. And the secret about Hooper is that because she's been working for 20 plus years with little to no expenses, she has like $50,000 in the bank. So they go to the city and they start a fucking employment agency. They buy a building and they decide to start an employee employment agency in New York City for women who the world has thrown away. So she essentially... Ruth is turning these women who are just like her into her own little private army. Because these women are now going to be working all over the fucking city. Mm -hmm. So she destroys Bob's career by sending in this like hot to trot data processor bookkeeper who he clearly has an affair with. And then she sends proof of the affair to Mary and Mary freaks the fuck out. But then she destroys his freedom by having, after Olivia, this woman that she has sent to work for him, after Olivia (laughs) is dumped by him, she helps Ruth embezzle a bunch of money and move it from, like, his client's accounts to his private account. And the greatest thing about this scene is watching Ruth and Olivia skulk around this building in their disguises because they have these, like, big scarves and big coats and it's kind of like, hilarious to watch um Mm -hmm. and he gets tossed in jail for embezzlement and the movie doesn't end there but it's pretty fucking great to see a revenge fantasy like this actually work (laughs) and to see that in the process of the revenge it wasn't just about taking him down it was about watching ruth find her purpose and build herself up yep so yep. I know that this is a stretch in the theme of friends with money because, you know, I'm talking about Mary Fisher, who comes into the movie with a lot of money already. I think the the reason I picked it and I was thinking of um, this marriage and how, you know, most most people feel like they're friends with the people they marry and watching him become more and more successful um, and earn more and more money and have a, a an astoundingly much better life than he ever gave her after he's kind of used her and thrown her out. So that was why I picked it for the theme. Yeah. Plus, I I have to say, I mean, for the theme, I feel like it's... The movie changed courses about what what the message was, which was great, because it's like, I think at the beginning, you know, the Ruth character does 
she is jealous of Mary Fisher. She mm-hmm. wishes that she had her money and her fame and her, you know, beauty and all these things. And when you first, you know, when you first catch wind that she's going to basically like raise hell against her ex-husband, you're thinking, oh, it's because she's jealous of of Mary and she wants to ruin Mary. Mm-hmm. But as it turns out, she's not. She doesn't. She ends up not following through on that impulse to blame the woman. Yes, you know, and she she ends up like, you know, actually like helping other women at the end of the film, which I very much appreciated. Did not catch that. When I was a kid, I can tell you right now. (laughs) That is so important because that's the poignant part of the movie where she puts the blame where it belongs, which is on this fucking man who is out here doing this to several women. He is using women all over the place to fuel his own life and career. And she, like you said, starts out being jealous of Mary, turns it into fuel and fans the fire against the person who fucking deserves it. And that was not something I caught on to as a, as a kid either. And I couldn't understand as a kid why it was so exciting for me to watch her take him down. And yeah. as an adult, I fully understand why it's exciting yeah. to watch her not just take him down, but again, like she finds her own purpose and uses it to help women. I just, I love this fucking movie. Yeah. Yeah, so I I feel like for the theme, it actually fits pretty well. (laughs) So don't discredit yourself. It actually works a lot. And that's, you know, essentially, I think what the two have in common is that these are, you know, stories about women who are jealous of each other, who want each other's success and fame and that kind of stuff. And then, you know, the rest of the movie plays out in, in different ways slightly. But, you know, that topic, I think, is what we wanted to talk about this week, right? Completely. Oh, I'm so glad we did it. I'm so glad we did it. I, I gotta tell you, I am so glad that I rewatched She-Devil. Holy shit. It's like a revelation to me. I was like, I didn't know any of this stuff. I didn't realize Susan Sodoman directed it. I, you know, I it brought up all these feelings that I had about Roseanne Barr in the 80s. Like, I was like, this is such a rich text. I don't know why. It never occurred to me as a child that it would be this rich of a text. I'm just saying. And now you're you're writing a book on it, clearly. You should. Oh, I feel like I need to read this Faye Weldon book. Have you ever read that I've book? I've never read it. Now I want to read it. I want to especially see if it's as funny as the movie is. Because the movie is so funny. Yeah. That I'm kind of wondering, like, was the book also funny or was the book more of a, like, revenge read? <laughs> Okay, we're gonna we're gonna have to start a two person book club and read this book for sure, for okay. sure. Now that we're headed indoors, we are definitely gonna have this book club. So you can read it, read it on the Reba Maze, read it on a haunted hayride. <laughs> I will be reading a book in a corn maze for sure. That is oh, just the style. Well, we have some movies for next week, but first. But first, if you would like to email us, we are at I saw what you did pod at gmail.com. Send us questions for the bonus episodes. And if you want to write physical letters, please find our P.O. Box address uh, on our link tree on the Instagram page. And you can leave us a voicemail now to play on the show, guys. Did you know that? You can leave us a fucking voicemail. All you have to do is record a voicemail on your phone and email it to I saw what you did pod at gmail.com. 
please make it 60 seconds or less and record it in a quiet space. If you don't do either of those things, we ain't playing it. Sure. Sure. Um, Also, our social media accounts. (laughs) (laughs) What a great weird full circle after the top of the episode discussion. (laughs) We are at, I saw Pod at Instagram and Twitter, I got to tell you, I'm in the process now of possibly starting a Blue Sky account. So if you're a Blue Sky person, we'll probably be on there. Um, And also we have merch. Go to the I Saw What You Did section of the Exactly Right Shop to find it. Yes. And our bonus episodes are new on the third Thursday of every month. And then every couple of weeks, we are releasing our old bonus episodes into the main feed. They're no longer behind a paywall. Uh, So a couple times a Every once in a while, you get to hear us like two or three times a month, two or three times a week. That is right. Oh my gosh, next week is yeah. going to be good. Tell them. Yay, yay. I cannot fucking wait for us to watch Candyman from 1992 and Silence of the Lambs from 1991. I'm making motorcycle hands. The most terrifying year of our lives, our young <laughs> lives, were ruined between 1991 and 1992. <laughs> Just that entire year span. <laughs> we, we lived so much life, and we didn't even know it. Danielle, as always, a fucking pleasure doing this podcast with you. I goddamn love it. See you later. This has been an Exactly Right production, produced by Casey O'Brien. Episode mixing and theme music by Tom Breifogel. Artwork by Garrett Ross. Our executive producers are Georgia Hardstart, Karen Kilgariff, and Daniel Kramer. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at IsawPod. And you can email us at IsawWhatYouDidPod at Gmail. Follow I Saw What You Did on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. And if you like what you hear, rate and review the show. And visit exactlyrightstore.com to purchase I Saw What You Did merch.